if you want to find uh, the book of Exodus, which is the second book in your Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words will magically appear on the screen behind me in a moment or two. Uh, the book of Exodus tells perhaps the most vivid and dramatic story, um, not just in the Bible, but perhaps in all of human history. It tells the story of the people of God, the Israelites, who were captives, were slaves in Egypt, and tells how they were dramatically rescued out. And then not only were they rescued out, that they were, God takes them on this incredible journey, uh, not just to a new land, but into his plans and promises for them. Uh, and we've been going through the book of Exodus as a church because in the story of Exodus, it's not just a fascinating piece of history or some deep theology, but it speaks right into the very depths of who we are about how God has rescued us to draw us into his plans and purposes. And what we're going to do today is we're going to cover four chapters in one morning. Is that okay with you guys? So do, <laughs> a few people think it's too much. So, <laughs> so I'm just going to start reading, and then we'll let you go home when I finish sometime this evening. Okay? No, we're not going to, we won't have time to read the whole chunk, but we're going to look at um, from the end of, or near the end of chapter 20 through to verse 11 of chapter 24. And what you find in this particular section of the book of Exodus is what is later to be known as the, the book of the covenant, which is where the people of God have come to uh, Mount Sinai uh, to receive God's command, his instruction for what he has next for them, for how he wants them to live, for what he wants them to look like as a community. So earlier this year, we went through the the Ten Commandments, which is the, the first part of that uh, verse, chapter 20 of Exodus. And then the next few chapters, God kind of adds some more layers of detail to his plans and promises to them. Now, if you've been a, a Christian for a while, or if you've ever picked up a Bible and tried to read it, tried to read it, you often get to this part of Exodus and you can get a bit stuck. Because you think, I don't know how this makes sense to my life. And the temptation is, is just to skip straight past it. But then obviously, sooner or later, you'll hit the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, and you'll find more laws and instructions and commands, and the, the temptation is just think, oh, when can I get to the Psalms? That's the good stuff, right? When do we get there? When do we get to the, the book of Acts and the Gospels and we can learn about Jesus? And it's a temptation to skip past these bits because there's some funny verses in here. You know, because I'm sure many of you have never asked the question of what do I do if my ox gores someone? And in Exodus chapter 21, you can find the answer to that question. Or what do I do if I take my neighbor's coat? Should I return it before sundown or after sundown? You can find the answer here in the book. But you can read verses like that and think, <laughs> how does this have any relevance to my life? And the temptation is just to jump straight past it and ignore it. 
and some of the commands here, I'll be honest, some of them, will, you'll perhaps find them even a bit offensive. Some of the principles here, you'll think, whoa, to our Western, modern eyes and ears, it can sound and read very provocative, very difficult to understand. How do we respond to these things? Well, the best place to start is actually to roll back a little bit, and we're going to read the first few verses of chapter 19 of Exodus, because that gives a little bit of an introduction into the next bit of the book, and then we will pray together. So it says from verse 1 of Exodus 19, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness, and they encamped there. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, you shall tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word, the Bible, and sometimes it confuses us and baffles us, but we know ultimately it's life to us. It's food for our soul. It guides us, and more than anything, it draws us deeper into you. And that's our prayer this morning, is that we want to go deeper into you, your plans, your purposes, and first and foremost, your great, great love for us. We just want to come and bathe and swim in your love, your kindness, your compassion for us this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and everything you've done for us. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is get straight into the big question that you're probably trying to get your head around, is how, how do I understand these bits of the Bible? How do I understand the law as it's called? Well, let me give you a few pointers. First of all, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, as in all scripture is from God, and there's an authority that comes with that. So we believe that not because it's just a good idea, but because it says it, because when Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament, he says exactly this, all scripture, all of the Bible is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So if you want to become more like Jesus, you need the Bible and you need all of it. Not just the bits that you like, not just your favorite verses, but you need all of the Bible. 
And when Paul was writing this to Timothy, who received those words in a letter that was sent to him, when he would, Timothy would have opened it up and read it, the scriptures that he would have known would have been what would make up most of your Old Testament. He wouldn't have had the New Testament in the same way that we do now. So when he, he read those words, he would have immediately thought of what we've just read, the Exodus story, the book of Genesis, what was called the Torah. That's what he would have said, oh yes, that's what Paul means, I need this. And as Christians, we claim that the Bible is our ultimate authority. And to be honest, I think in, in, in our city, in our generation, this verse, this idea, is perhaps one of the most important, important things that you need to know. Because all the time you're going to be challenged about this. All the time you're confronted with a worldview, a way that our city thinks, the way that people around us think, the way that we're told to think, that will contradict what you believe. And the temptation will be to, to step back and say, well, everyone else thinks this. Therefore, to make my life easier, I'll just go and join their team. And it can become easy to, to begin to ignore bits of the Bible or delete bits, pretend some of it isn't, isn't there. But the problem is if you say that the Bible is your ultimate authority, but then you don't listen to all of it, then you immediately take away from that idea. You give authority to something else. If the Bible is the ultimate authority, apart from the bits that you don't like, then you're effectively saying that you are the ultimate authority. You get to judge which bits are good and bad, therefore you have authority over it. Or you give authority to some other idea, some other concept is better than that. And you might think, well, why does it, why does it matter for the Bible to be the ultimate authority? Why, why can't I just use the Bible as kind of a good uh, book of wisdom, a book of kind of inspiration, um, equal with other books or other ideas that uh, also help me in life? You know, I can use the Bible as a guide, but there are other things as well that can guide me. Well, how, why can't I just hold them together? Why can't I not do that? Well, you can do that, but what you'll do is you'll find that without any ultimate authority that you build your life upon, you'll spend your entire life running from one good idea to the next good idea. If you, don't set, if you don't build your life upon something, you'll find that it will always be shifting sand beneath your feet. It'll always just be crumbling away from around you. Because there's, there's so many different ideas, so many things that you're supposed to believe, so many things that we're supposed to care about, that we're supposed to value, and it can change all the time. It can be bewildering. That's why many people around us get, get anxious, get worried. They feel like life is just all-consuming because everybody's telling them what to believe all the time. And if you don't have something, some ultimate thing that you're saying, that's the thing, then you're always going to have some trouble. You'll always be bewildered. The philosopher G.K. Chesterton said that 
the modern age has no philosophy, only phraseology. What he meant by that is, we know, we know lots of good words and good ideas, because all the time we get people, you know, you get little social media snippets of a good idea, a good idea, a good word, a good sentence, a nice meme that's inspirational. But if there's no guiding philosophy behind it, then you always just be running from one thing to the next. And as Christians, we say, build your life on the Bible, on the Word of God. And if this verse is true, if all Scripture is God-breathed, then when we come to bits of the Bible like this, you can't just ignore them. You've got to look into it and say, well, what does this mean? So that's the first key to help you understand it. The second one is that all of this law, which can sound perhaps restrictive, can sound kind of overwhelming, can sound harsh, it's actually all founded on grace, on the grace of God. And how do we know that? Well, later on in Deuteronomy, the people of God, they come to Moses and they ask him, they ask Moses this same question. And Moses answered them. So in, in verse 20 of chapter 6, Moses says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? So he's saying, when people show me these verses, the, this book of the covenant, what does that mean? You know, what should I say to my son when he asks me that? Is the question that Moses is trying to answer. And Moses says this, he says, you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to do all these statues to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. You see how Moses starts there? He's asked, answering this question, how do I understand the law? What does it mean for my life? He doesn't say, well, you understand it and that you just need to obey, just get on with it. Just do as you're told. And then God will bless you. He doesn't do that. He starts by saying, you were slaves and God rescued you. <laughs> what he's saying is all of this is founded on, is based on the grace of God. He's not saying, obey, and then you'll be free. He's saying, you're free, so now surely we should obey. He says, completely, what comes first is rescue. It's rescue. That's what Moses is saying to him. Your rescue comes first. Because we can get into this kind of wrong-headed thinking that we think that the God we read about in the Old Testament is bad, and he's angry, and he wants to punish us, 
wants to give us lots of rules and things to do, but the God of the New Testament is happy and kind. No, it's the same God. All through the Bible, he's gracious and compassionate and loving. And he's also holy and just. All through the Bible, the same God. All through all of history, right now, today, He's alive today and he's the same as he's ever been. And what Moses does is he places the law in the context of their redemption. Which means we can find the meaning of the law is found within the gospel. We find it within Jesus and his love for us. What's most important, what comes first is his grace that he's rescued us. The next thing to say is that This law is motivated by the mission of God. What do I mean by that? You can go back to Genesis, where God speaks to Abraham and begins to deliver him his kind of first covenant that he speaks to Abraham. He says to him, I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, if you go right to the very back, to the beginning, you see, God's plan right from the beginning of time was he made humanity as the crowning achievement of all of his creation. We were his pride, his joy that he sent into the world. Humanity. And this covenant that he makes with the people of God here in Exodus, it's designed to show them how to be God's true humanity. That's what it's there for. This is how you're going to be a great nation. That's what he's saying to them. This is how you'll be a great people. And this is how you're going to display my glory to all of the earth. That all the other nations, all the other peoples will look at you and say, that's what humanity is supposed to look like. That's how we're supposed to live. Because fundamentally, what this, all these different commandments are about, they're about, first of all, having right relationship with God, what it is to worship God, but also a lot of them are about social justice, about how to have right relationship with other people. So God's given them these instructions to say, this is how to love me, and this is how to love others. Do that and show the rest of the world. That's what this is at the very heart of this covenant, this promise that God's making to them. The next thing to say is that this law is actually based on the character of God. We believe that as human beings that we're made in God's image. We're made in his design and we're designed to reflect his character to the world around us. The people will see us and they'll see a glimpse, perhaps a shadow, but an image, a picture, however faint, of what God is like. It's what humanity is supposed to do, to reflect what God is like. 
And the law, again, is to bring the people of God into line with his character. God's saying to them, this is how you can be like me. (laughs) This is how you can live lives of holiness. This is how you can live lives of love and care and compassion and grace. It's based around his character. Because you might read it and you might see vengeance and judgment, but if you look closely, what you'll see is grace, mercy, and holiness, justice, right relationship with others. Because what happens later on in the New Testament is some people come to Jesus and they, they ask him, which is, the, which is the greatest commandment? Which should we follow? And he says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he's saying, love God with everything you have and love other people as yourself. He's saying it, it boils, that's the essence of it. That's what it boils down to. Showing us what it is to be like God, his very character. And the last point on this is that the law is actually good. It's good. It was designed to be good for the people of Israel. Which we don't, we don't read it and think, oh, what a good thing. I'm glad this is here. <laughs> but it is supposed to be good. In Psalm 19, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I'm very grateful for that verse. I'm a simple man. I follow God's ways. I can be wise. You know, if you're feeling oh, weary and you want your soul to be revived and maybe you've come to church this morning to worship God, to give yourself a bit of a kind of a, a revival or hit in your heart. Oh, my soul feels so much warmer. Well, actually it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. See, God's ways, his instructions, his plans for us, sometimes in minute detail, are good for us. And they're there to revive you. Because we hear the word law, and probably all morning so far, every time I say that, it sounds like a little dagger into your heart. Law, it sounds horrible. It sounds so oppressive. Perhaps the better way to translate that would be to say instruction. This is God's guidance. This is like his kind of constitution he was writing for them. Some people call it like a freedom charter. How to live a life of freedom. How to follow him. And how they can be a source of light and truth and grace for others. As well as receiving it for themselves. Now, you might think, hold on a second. I've read the Bible, and 
You know, there's this thing called the Old Covenant and there's this thing called the New Covenant. So why does this matter? You know, why are we even talking about this? Surely you can just write off most of the Old Testament because Jesus and, you know, it's the kind of the Sunday school answer, isn't it? You know, you ask your kids a question about the Bible, any question, and they will automatically say, Jesus. <laughs> and they're kind of right, and it's kind of annoying. And you, yeah, okay, well, all right, but let, let's go a bit deeper than that. And we can kind of answer this in the same way. We can hold it as sort of the checkmate. We can read the law and think, oh, yeah, sure, it's good for us, blah, 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 but Jesus, so we don't need to really worry about it. I can just forget all of this because of Jesus, right? Well, what's happening here is, as I've been, I've using, been using this word again and again, covenant. God comes and make a covenant, which is like a firm contract, a deep commitment to the people of God. The same way as you do when you get married. You stand before another work person and you make promises to one another. You share some vows. This is how I'm going to live before you. This is how I'm going to honor you. This is how I'm going to love you. And they reply and they do the same. And in that moment, if something beautiful happens on the wedding day and they make this covenant with one another, something profound and deep, something wonderful. And this is what God's doing with his people. He's making a covenant with them. He's drawing them into deep relationship with him. In the Heidelberg Catechism, which is the Heidelberg Catechism was written about 500 years ago and in a question and answer format, just gives you a rich foundation of God and what he's like and how to follow him. And in question four, it says, what does God's law require of us? And the answer is from Matthew 22, which we read earlier, that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So what does God's law require us? That we should love God with everything we have. Then the next question says, can you keep this all perfectly? And the answer is no. No. We can't. Maybe some of you have tried, I've tried, to perfectly live your life. I remember as a kid, it's a bit of an embarrassing story, I don't know what I'm telling you, but I remember as a child, um, I must have been at church or something, and, and hearing someone say that Jesus was perfect and that he never sinned. I remember going home that afternoon. I vividly remember looking out of my window and gazing off into the distance and thinking, I've never sinned. I, can, I, I literally thought, I, I can think of no instance in my life when I've ever done anything wrong, ever. Maybe I'm Jesus. <laughs> I, I actually thought that. That was a long time ago. I was a very, very small, very small. <laughs> and you soon learn that you can't perfectly live up to God's standards. You can't perfectly Love him. You may have tried and you'll have failed. Even to keep your own standards. Even to love yourself. And try that when we fail, right? The goals you have for your life, the plans, the way you want to live. Your own kind of inner moral code that you have. 
whether or not you're a Christian, we can't keep it perfectly. You fail. We all do. See, the, the law of God, it can't bring you freedom. And some of us now, we still try and live like that. It might not be that we're reading these verses and we're worrying about our ox or our coat or whatever, but in lots of ways, we can live a life where we're just trying to make God happy. We're just trying to do the right things to make us feel better about ourselves. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you actually might be the most legalistic person in the room. Your whole life might be built around following a certain code that you've designed for yourself and what you eat and what you wear and what you think and what you do and what you don't do. We have these rigid systems that we build because we think that if I do all these things, I'll be happy. If I do all these things, I'll be free. And it doesn't work because we can't follow even our best laid plans. But as we've already been looking at this law can't bring you freedom, but it was never designed to. It was designed to follow the freedom that the people of God had already received. It talks in Galatians about how you can't find justification, as in you can't be just and right before a holy God by following the law, because none of us can keep up to that standard. And yes, now we're, we're under a new covenant. The old covenant has passed away. It says in Hebrews chapter eight that Jesus is our high priest now, and he's the high priest of a better covenant. It says elsewhere that Jesus has come to fulfill it, not to abolish it but to get rid of, and to get rid of it, but to fulfill the covenant, to live it out perfectly, and then to make a new covenant for us. There's two pictures that Paul uses in Galatians and in Romans. First of all, in Galatians, he says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. What he's saying is like, it's a bit like you were, a, you were a, as a, under like a legal guardian, as like an adopted child, but you've now been moved from one family to the next. You are under the old covenant and now you've been, as a believer in Jesus, added into his new covenant. You've been added into a new family as his adopted child. In Romans 7, he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. He's saying that almost as, as like a married person, your old husband or wife has died and you've now been remarried into a new relationship with Christ, with Jesus. You're not under the old ways anymore. You're under his plan, his purposes. And the question is, well, how, do we, how should we respond then? Does that mean that we just do what we want because Jesus loves us? And any law, any instruction, we just ignore? Well, Paul answers that 
in Romans 6. He says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he says, may it never be. What happens now is that Jesus wants you to abide in him, as in to live with him, to enjoy him forever. And as you do that, you'll bear fruit. As in, as you love God, then you suddenly find you're able to keep his ways, to follow his commandments, to follow his plans, because you want to. Because you've discovered it's just a better way to live. Think all these old ways, goodness, they're so pale, they're so bleak. They promise so much, but deliver so little. But in following Jesus, there's a better way to live. And suddenly you find that the Holy Spirit comes and says in Hebrews that the law, it doesn't say it's abolished, it's gone, it doesn't matter. It says the law is now written on our hearts. That's what happens when you follow Jesus. Holy Spirit comes into your life and fills you and something deep inside of you wants to follow God. Now there's temptations, there's trials, and there's ups and downs, but as we were looking over the summer, there's this fruit of the Spirit growing in you, this inevitable grace that's been birthed in you that little by little is changing you more and more into his likeness. I think perhaps the best way to explain all this is where this section of the book finishes in Exodus 24. So I'm just going to read from verses 4 to 11. So this is what happens after Moses has been up on the mountain and he's written down everything that God's been saying to him, all these judgments, commands, instructions. It says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half of the blood, he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, which is these chapters here that we've been talking about, And he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. The Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders went up and they saw the God of Israel And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They behold God and ate and drank. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? There's Moses and these 70 men. They go up the mountain, they go to this place, and they saw God. And then they had a meal with him. They had lunch with God. It's really remarkable if you think about it. 
See, these, this book of the covenant, the Ten Commandments and everything that follows, they're designed so that they could see God. They could come and glimpse him. You see, there's a pattern here. There's rescue, which comes first. They're rescued out the rules that he brings them, but to bring them into relationship with God, that they might see him, that they might behold God, that they might sit and have lunch with him, eat and drink with God. But somehow this story is, is incomplete because there's just 70 of them. The rest of the people of God are left further down the mountain. The story is incomplete, but it doesn't finish there because it's now completely fulfilled in Jesus. Now Jesus provides a meal for all his people. And the blood of the new covenant has been poured out, not just for 70 now, but for us, that we might know him. We've been rescued so that we might know him. He's drawn us out of slavery and sin to draw us into his way of living and ultimately deep, profound relationship with God. And that's how the Bible finishes. In Revelation 19, you get this picture of what it calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where it's not just sitting and having a packed lunch on the side of a mountain, you know, a few sandwiches and some Pringles. That's not what they're eating, I'm making it up. But it's this wedding feast. This rich platter of every kind of food imaginable that you're invited to now. Isn't that wonderful? We can, we can read these verses in these chapters and think, oh goodness, so many things to do. What Jesus is shouting out to you is, I've made a new covenant with you that you can come and see me, that you can come and know me. You can just come and have this rich and deep relationship with me. That you can come and have this feast, all the blessings of God for us to enjoy for all of eternity. What we're going to do now is I'm going to pray in a moment and then we get to have... I guess a little foretaste of that this morning is that we can come and share communion together. This meal that Jesus gave to his disciples so that they remember his body broken for them and his blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for us. As we eat and drink together, it reminds us of this wonderful marriage supper of the lamb that we're invited to that he's rescued us, that we might know him.